We are on our second last installment of the 10 words. Next week, we'll, uh, there are not 11 or 12 commandments, there are only 10, but next week we're going to kind of wrap it up uh, with a message that sort of concludes, uh, bring a conclusion to them all. And uh, so today, I've entitled this um, 11th installment, the 10th commandment, called 10 words, heart check. And I think you'll see uh, what we mean in a couple of moments. Uh, let's stand together, and uh, we are going to read this text. This is from Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. And uh, <clears throat> on the count of three, we're going to read it together. One, two, three. Well done. Let's pray. Father, we again pause to just express our reverence and and Lord, our honor for your holy name. And we thank you and praise you for your generosity and the way that you've shown that in Jesus so extravagantly, so generously, so graciously. Lord, we thank you for the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit that takes everything you've done in Jesus and make it possible, available, and applicable in our lives. And so now we ask that that same Holy Spirit would give us a voice to speak, give us ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts, Lord, to appreciate, and Father, particularly as we leave this place, this property, this facility, this building, Lord, that You would help us by that same Holy Spirit to live out what it means to be the people of Jesus, to be the people of God, to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And to do that in practical, meaningful ways. In our homes, in our marriages, our relationships, neighbors, our workplaces, school, where we get our services. And Lord, all of those places and people that we meet and all of those places that we go, that You would help us to live out what it means to be disciples of Jesus Christ. We love You, we praise You, and thank You in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to be seated. Now I understand that I got a bit of a mocking a couple of weeks ago about my water bottle. So anyway, <clears throat> I thought I'd break the tradition. <clears throat> The rabbinical patriarch, Rabbi Hillel, who lived around the time of Jesus, actually the end of his life was the last ten, the first ten years of Jesus' life. He was approached by a, a potential um, disciple of Judaism. And he approached uh, Rabbi Hillel and he said to him, he said, Sir, he said, Teacher, if you can tell me the whole Torah, the whole law, while standing on one leg, then I will be a follower of Judaism. And Rabbi Hillel stood on his leg and said, What is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. This is the whole Torah. All the rest is commentary. Now go and study. 
I want you to keep that story in mind as we go through this, the Tenth Commandment this morning. I think where we need to start is with the word coveting. Now, most of us, when we think of coveting, we usually think of something that is negative. But actually, coveting means more than that, actually. The Hebrew word literally means, it's a positive as well, it literally means to desire or to delight in somewhere, something. If we read in the New Testament, <coughs> excuse me, where it talks about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31, where Paul says earnestly, in the ESV, he says earnestly desire uh, the best gifts. In the authorized version in the King James Bible, it actually says this, but covet earnestly the best gifts. So covet is another word for desire or delight, and desire and delight is not always a negative thing. To desire something and to delight in something is not necessarily negative, it's not necessarily wrong. In fact, God has put within us intrinsically in creation that we would desire things, that we would delight in things, and our desires and our delights have enormous influence over our lives. But there's also this. Now, we negatively, the negative idea, we usually covet desire, delight in people or things that are attractive to us, that are pleasant to the eyes. If everyone was ugly (coughs) and everything was unpleasant and unattractive, then we would not have a problem, would we? In other words, when we covet someone or something, it usually has something to do with sight, with seeing, with looking. And of course, this is how the whole problem that we have began. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, it says this, So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And she took it of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he There's another story that comes out of the history of ancient Israel, and that's in the book of Joshua, where there's a man by the name of Achan. And uh, one of the things that Achan did is that he stole some merchandise that actually was belonged to the Lord, that was dedicated to the Lord. And when he is finally confronted by Joshua, this is what he says. He says, when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. But it's more than just sight, than just looking at someone or something that is attractive or is pleasant to us. At the root of desire... At the root of coveting, the negative idea of coveting, is the idea of discontentment. I want you to imagine a cartoon with me for a moment of two fields. 
and it's two fields of beautiful, lush, green grass, and it's divided by a fence. And in each field, there is a mule. And each mule has its head through the fence, eating from the pasture of the other mule. Now, all around them, there's this beautiful lush green grass. There's more than they're ever going to need, but the grass on the other side of the fence seems greener and fresher. And even though it's harder to get at, they poke their heads through the fence. In the next frame of the cartoon, the mules cannot get their heads back out of the fence. And the caption at the bottom of the cartoon reads, Discontent. The lie of coveting is this. The lie of coveting is that if I were in somebody else's situation, if I were in somebody else's shoes, then my life would mean more. That I would be happier. The lie of coveting is this, if only. If only I had a more attractive spouse, a more loving spouse, a more caring spouse, a more understanding spouse. If only I had kids who were more considerate and appreciative. If only I had come from a different background. If only I had a different set of breaks, another set of chances. If only I had more money. If only I had more opportunity. If only things were different. And is it any wonder that Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, he says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Now that brings us to the negative meaning of the word covet. And it's Eugene Peterson actually in the message that picks it up and he translates the, uh, the text in uh, Exodus chapter 20 verse 17 this way. No lusting after your neighbor's house or wife or servant or maid or ox or donkey. Don't set your heart on anything that is your neighbor's. And so to covet, in the negative sense, is to lust. And this is problematic because when our desires, when our natural God-given desires and delights give way to lust, we are never satisfied. Matter of fact, the Proverbs picks this up and talks about such a person and it says this, that all day long he craves and craves. The lust for more. And once we go down that road, it never seems to end. A wealthy entrepreneur was on vacation in one of the Caribbean islands. And one afternoon, he was strolling along the beach, and he noticed that a fisherman was lazily sitting beside his boat, enjoying the afternoon. And the entrepreneur went up to him and said, why aren't you out fishing? And the fisherman said, because I've caught enough fish for today. 
And the entrepreneur said, well then, why don't you go out and catch more fish? And the fisherman said, what would I do with them? Well, the entrepreneur said, well, you could earn more money. And then you could buy a better boat so that you could go out into deeper waters and catch even more fish. And then you could purchase nylon nets and make even more money. And eventually you could own a whole fleet of boats and be rich like me. And the fisherman says or asks, what would I do then? And the entrepreneur says, well, you could sit down and you could enjoy life. To which the fisherman said, what do you think I'm doing now? <laughs> Coveting is a process that can consume us. But I think also in our text, not only must we look at the word <clears throat> coveting, we also must look at the word neighbor. Our neighbor. Now, <clears throat> Jesus was asked this question in Matthew chapter 22. Someone came to him and said, Teacher, tell us, which is the, great, the greatest commandment? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God, with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now what does it mean to love our neighbor as ourself. Now remember Rabbi Hillel that I began this morning with? He said this, to love my neighbor as myself is to recognize that the other person, the other fellow, the other woman is my equal as one who is like unto me. Our neighbor are those who are equal to us, which means everybody. It's not just the person that lives beside us or is sitting beside us this morning, but everybody. Now, <clears throat> loving our neighbor as ourself and the golden rule. Now, what we all know what the golden rule is, right? What's the golden rule? Okay, that's really loud. What's the golden rule? Oh, that's pathetic. Come on, this is not a trick question. What's the golden rule? Okay, I didn't understand that, but I'm a Pentecostal, so I got the gift of interpretation, so here it is. And Jesus said that whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this, again, is the law and the prophets. Now, first of all, know this, that the second commandment to uh, love our neighbor as ourselves and the golden rule that we are to do unto others as we would have them do unto us is the opposite of breaking the tenth commandment. But there's also this. Did you know 
that the golden rule is not uniquely Christian? That the golden rule is not uniquely a thing of Christianity? We know that the Chinese, 500 years before Jesus, actually had a similar uh, rule. They quoted it negatively, don't do to others what you do not want others to do to you. And the Jews, long before Jesus, had the golden rule. And we already quoted it, what is hateful to you, uh, Rabbi Hillel said, do not do to your neighbor. The Muslim tradition also has a golden rule or a form so Why is it called the Golden Rule? A couple of weeks ago, Ruth and I had a chance to go down and uh, we were at a family wedding and so we took the Sunday and hung out with our middle boy and his wife, Josh and Melinda, and so we went to their church and and they have a young pastor and uh, he was talking about this very thing and he said some interesting things about the Golden Rule. I didn't know this before. Do you know why it's called the Golden Rule? Because an Anglican pastor in 1604 mentioned it in his sermon. And it caught on all throughout England. And so this, the golden rule is a way of incorporating the biblical truth, the biblical teaching into societal practice. It's how community works well together. Practicing the golden rule is actually a positive thing. And he said this, He said, it is fine to call it the golden rule if we understand that Christianity does not operate on the gold standard. It operates on another standard. If this is the golden rule, then there must be another standard. There must be a higher standard. There must be a platinum rule. The golden rule is important. As I said, it's important for us as community to be able to live together and exist together and to be healthy. But the golden rule, or loving our neighbors as ourselves, the second commandment, the second greatest commandment, is not the primary practice of the Christian faith. The primary practice of the Christian faith is this. Is that we would love the Lord our God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind. And Luke adds in our body. And if we would practice this first practice of Christianity, I think it might help us to understand and help us to live not in a covetous way toward our neighbor and toward our neighbor's stuff and our neighbor's spouse and whatever the case may be because our first love is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our mind, and all of our soul and all of our body. That brings us to this. Our heart. What is... The heart. This is a question that Tim Keller asks and answers. What is the heart? Now, you have probably heard, and you've probably heard me say this, that the heart is the center of our emotions. It is the seat of our emotions. But the truth is <clears throat> that we have really been caught into a world whereby everything, the greatest value in our lives is emotion and feeling. 
But what is our heart? Our heart is the center of our whole person. Our heart is the control center of our whole being. That's what our heart is. Now, our hearts have impulses toward good. And our hearts hearts have inclinations toward evil. Impulses toward good, inclinations toward evil. The Proverbs tell us that we should trust in the Lord with all our hearts and lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways direct our, in all our ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight our paths. That's what the heart does. The heart trusts. The heart trusts in things. And then, of course, Jesus said, He said in Matthew's Gospel, He said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And what he meant is that the heart is the place where we decide what is going going to be our treasure. So the heart has impulses impulses toward good and inclinations toward evil. The heart trusts in things and the heart is the place where we decide what it is that we are going to treasure. What is our supreme good? What is our ultimate hope? Archbishop William Temple said this, Our religion is what we do with your... Sorry, our religion is what we do with our solitude. In other words, D.L. Moody once said that Uh, What we are when we are alone is who we truly are. Now what temple means is simply this. He means that the thing that our hearts adores, cherishes, hopes, and trusts in, the thing that we really look to most of for our salvation is what our mind automatically goes to when we have nothing else to think about. Now pause there for a moment and just let me say that again. The heart is the place where the things that we most adore and cherish and love The heart is the place where the things that we most trust in take place. The thing that we really look to for our salvation, a key statement, the thing, the heart is the place where the thing that we look to for our salvation most is what we automatically think about when we have nothing else to think about. Now, what Jesus, Jesus said this. In, Matthew, in Revelation chapter 2, 4, Jesus said that he referred to this as the love that we had at first, our first love. Now, let me illustrate this for you. 
Now, I know this is difficult because we all have cell phones. Have you ever noticed? Anytime you're in a... I had to spend some time this past week in a doctor's office and in a garage waiting room. You ever notice? Everybody is doing this. And the problem is, is that we really don't have any place where we have got time where we are just alone with our thoughts. But when we are standing in line somewhere and we're waiting to check out, or we're um, at a doctor's office or a garage, or any place that we have five minutes to wait, maybe we're waiting at a bus stop, and miracle of miracles, we do not pull out our phone. And we have five minutes to wait. And Temple says, that where our mind goes to in that five minutes is what is most important to us and what we look most to for our salvation. So if in that five minutes, my mind, your mind, our minds go to God and we glorify God and we think of God, then that's what our hearts most cherish. But if in that five minutes my mind goes toward this congregation and this church and, you know, how we can do things differently and better, then my career is more important than God. In that five minutes, if your mind goes toward the next vacation, if your mind, God forbid, goes toward another person other than your spouse, That's what we most look to for our salvation. Because whatever our minds go to in the five minutes that we have to think determines where our hearts are. Because I know you and you know me and our hearts fantasize, don't they? We fantasize about different things. And what comes to my mind, what comes to our mind, is the very thing that is most important to us. And Keller says this, what our, hearts most, what our heart most wants, our mind finds most reasonable. What our heart most wants, our emotions find most desirable. And what our hearts most want, our will finds most doable. Because our hearts are the control center of our lives. Of our whole being. What our hearts is set upon affects our minds, our emotions, and our wills. And Jesus says, for where your treasure is, 
there your heart will be also. So now it's heart check time. Mine and yours. Now I have been living with this for a couple of weeks. You're getting it for the first time. And I want to give you a moment to be able to process it. So I want you to close your eyes, don't close your eyes, but just in a moment of privacy. When you have five minutes to think, who or what do our thoughts go to? And Keller says, and Jesus says, that whatever our hearts and minds go to, whoever our hearts and minds go to in those five minutes is where our treasure is. It is the thing that we most adore. It is the thing that we most look to for our salvation. So if our minds, as I said a moment ago, goes toward money and making it and spending it, then guess who our God is. So now this is a private moment. So you know what? I'm going to get you all to close your eyes rather than looking at me. Just close your eyes. Just for a moment of privacy. Now I can't tell you. I can only tell for myself. But I had to do this heart check for me. That when I have five minutes alone, five minutes with my own thoughts, and when I ask myself, where do my thoughts go to in those five minutes? And I must confess to you that it wasn't always to God's glory of practicing His presence, of being consciously aware in the moment that standing in this line, sitting in this waiting room, I can worship God, I can glorify God, I can be consciously aware of God's presence. So what about you? What about you? What is it that your mind goes to? Who is it that your mind goes to? when you have five minutes with nothing else to think about. And that'll tell us. And it'll tell you and it'll tell me who our God is. And what it is we most trust in and what it is we most love and what it is that we most adore. Father, in the quiet, private, individual, honest moment right now, this is where your Holy Spirit works and speaks. And Lord, I have asked You to speak to each of us this morning in the same fashion in which You spoke to me two or three weeks ago. 
and I had some confessing to do. And since that time, I have tried with some success that when I have a few moments alone with my own thoughts, I have disciplined my thoughts to go to you and to give you praise and to give you glory. And so I pray now, Father, that you will just speak to each one in this room, to those that are watching online, and those that will watch the archive in a few weeks, in a few months, that this would be a moment of heart check. Because when we love the Lord our God with all of our heart and with all of our mind and with all of our soul and with all of our body, then coveting becomes much less a factor. It becomes diminished because we recognize that in your divine presence, the person that we most love other than you is our spouse if we're married. And all of a sudden we find ourselves when we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and body, the things that we already have, we now want. Because they are gifts from your hand. So, Father, in this quietness today, Speak to the hearts of these precious, precious people the way You spoke to my heart. And I pray, Father, that You will lead us as a congregation, as a people, to reestablish our first love. To reestablish the things that we loved at first. Lord, the higher standard is not the golden rule. The highest standard, the greatest standard, the platinum standard is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and mind and soul and body. This is the primary practice of the people of God. And we give Him praise and we give Him thanks. In Jesus' name, Amen.